There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you for downloading Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode, there are open and frank discussions about sexual abuse. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Rachel Sylvester. And I'm Alice Thompson. And in this show, we're talking to exceptional people who have overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is one of Britain's richest women who's built a successful business career out of selling sexy underwear and erotic toys. Jacqueline Gold started doing work experience at Anne Summers in 1979 at the age of 19 and quickly rose through the ranks to become chief executive in under a decade. Since then, she's turned the company into a household name with 91 retail stores and 20,000 direct sellers hosting Tupperware-style sex toy parties with a strict no-men policy. The rampant rabbit vibrator, which featured in an episode of Sex and the City, made £10 million in a single year. Gold's been nicknamed the Queen of Sex, but her childhood was marred by a dark secret, and trauma has followed her into adulthood. I've had a lot of adversity in my life, more than most, she says, but I don't dwell on it. You're either someone who spends your life blaming your bad luck, or you pick yourself up. I'm not a victim. Thank you very much for talking to us. And we're meeting you at home in Surrey, which is full of beautiful leather chairs and white sofas and absolutely immaculate house. But last time we interviewed you, we came to Anne Summers HQ. And I remember lots of furry red uh, handcuffs and mannequins with whips. (laughs) And there were some eye masks that Alice and I thought would be very good for getting a good night's sleep as rather tired mothers. But you said actually, no, they were blindfolds from a slightly more Fifty Shades of Grey vibe. Do you, are there lots of misunderstandings like that where people get the wrong end of the stick about your products? I think maybe there used to be, but I think Anne Summers has such great brand recognition now. And I think that we have such a good engagement with our customers, you know, with the, the whole advent of social media, you know, there's so many ways to communicate. I think people are very aware now what Anne Summers do. And of course, over the years, you know, we... We've evolved into selling, you know, we've, we've obviously got our knicker box range. We we have our My Viv range, which is all about well-being. So I think you, you'll find that they're, certainly it's all sexy, but we have something for everyone. <laughs> and the last time we saw you was just before Christmas. Um, the reindeer mankini was the one that was flying off the shelves. In the pandemic, what was your bestseller? Because someone said that it was actually penis pasta. Well, the penis pasta was just incredible because I think we sold more penis pasta in, in those first couple of months than we did in the entire of, of 2019. <laughs> so, uh, um, and even I was sort of cooking up pasta and uh, and putting it on social because, you know, people were, were just, supermarkets were just sold out, weren't they? So people were just trying to get their hands on any that they could. Did it taste so, good as well? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, it was uh, it, it was good fun. Do you think people have been having more sex during lockdown, though, or less? Oh, without a doubt, more sex. Um, I mean, we've been hugely fortunate. If I could just sort of paint a picture of suddenly being told that 100 stores have to close, you know, I was... I was heartbroken. I mean, I think we were all um, shell-shocked. And then a couple of weeks later, we suddenly saw the, the sales on our online were just growing. I mean, uh, we've been extremely fortunate during this period. Our online sales have been incredible. Our party plan sales have, have been fantastic. And even retail, you know, during the periods that we are able to open, we're having customers, less customers come into the store, as I'm sure all retailers will, will report. But people are coming in with intent, they know what they want, and they're spending more. So, um, you know, that 
we're very fortunate to have been in that position. And do you think people have become more adventurous, really, now that they've got more time at home? Um, I think they, they have been. You know, people are, you know, staying in is the new going out and, and finding new sexy ways to entertain themselves. So people are exploring more and, and, and experimenting. And certainly we've seen an increase in in toys, in um, couple toys. And, and obviously customers are, are experimenting. We've seen a, an increase in sales of role pay, the sexy nurse, for example. Um, you know, and I think... I think what's important is, you know, one of the messages that I think has really come across loud and, loud and clear to us is that our customers want to be safe and they want to be happy. So, you know, we've we've taken that very seriously and we've focused that in our, our marketing campaigns and, and, the, and the way that we, we communicate to our customers. And what are your personal favourite products? Have you got any? Oh, well, I think you mentioned about the, um, the rabbit, which you know, is close to my heart because it's iconic. You you probably saw when you walked into my house, I have a rabbit in the hallway that's sort of about four feet tall. Um, and even your doormat. My doormat is rabbit. I've got um, tea towels with rabbits printed on. My phone case is a rabbit. You know, all of these things uh, suddenly, even if you look over there in the fireplace, you'll see some rabbit uh, candlestick holders. So, um, yeah. Uh, I think it probably has to be the rabbit. <laughs> so your motto is, it's our business doing pleasure. Do you think during lockdown, it's been more male or female that have rediscovered their sexuality? I, I think it's both. And I, I think that's quite nice. I think it's, um, if you think about the journey that I've been on, when I first started the business, uh, it was very male orientated. I mean, it was, you know, probably 10% of customers coming into our stores were women. And women suddenly became uh, hugely empowered. And that's something I am incredibly proud of, you know, that, you know, I, I drove this cultural change and Anne Summers became a pioneer in women's uh, sexuality and their empowerment. But it's nice to see that, you know, it's done a full circle and, and men are now, you know, sort of part of that journey. We want to take you back to your childhood now. And your father is David Gold, the chairman of West Ham, who published adult magazines before buying Anne Summers. And I read that when you were born, he cried because he wanted a son rather than a daughter. Mm. Did you feel um, that you pressure to be a boy or be tomboyish when you were growing up? What was he like as a father? Yeah, actually not at all, um, because he was a very gentle man, still is very gentle you know, in an era when children were smacked for being naughty, my sister and I didn't experience anything like that. In, in fact, he, you know, he was very uh, soft with us. Probably, I would say, our mum, I mean, you know, she didn't uh, hit us either, but she was the one that sort of used to do the telling off. So uh, there was never pressure on me to be a boy or to live up to uh, what he was doing at all, because I think he genuinely was of that, generation when men didn't think women or their girls or daughters would would go into business you know and I think myself there were very few female role models I mean you had Anita Roddick you know she was a a great role model because not only was she running a business but she also had a purpose and businesses didn't have purposes then so and Debbie Moore I think who ran Pineapple of course and that was about it. Did you have a sense of what your father's career was and what his business did 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 he discuss it with you at all? Not really I mean he uh, never sort of brought anything home that made me aware of what he was doing Um, you know he, he started off actually selling comics and then at one point he was even selling Tiswas magazine I don't know if you remember Mm, that uh, that kids show um so no I wasn't aware but I do there was one occasion when I was I mean my parents split up anyway when I was about 12 and it was just before they split up I found a an old very old-fashioned you can imagine adult book which I remember taking to school and giggling (laughs) giggling with my friends behind the the pavilion we used to call it Um, and that's probably how most children learn about sex education etc but uh, and then of course my parents split up and and then it all you know became quite a difficult period for me. And what was your mother like because 
um, she sounds incredibly protective from what you've written and talked about, um, almost excessively so. Yeah, she she was, uh, you know, it, it, it was it was quite sad because, you know, what I remember of my mum is that she was incredibly protective of my sister and I wouldn't let us play in the front garden in case we were kidnapped. She wouldn't let us go on sleepovers, weren't allowed to go on the school bus. She would take us to school. So we felt very um, suppressed. I, I even remember as, as a youngster, my mother drawing a circle in the sand on the beach, putting me in that circle, and I wasn't allowed to go and play outside of that circle. Incredible. Mm. It's very controlling. And did, did you feel sort of controlled? And or Do you think there was an element of narcissism in her, that she it was actually about her rather than you? Well, obviously, as an adult now, I realise, or I, I, I make, uh, you know, a view that she was terrified of life herself. You know, she actually once said to me, if I could be, if I could live in the middle of a field and see no one, I'd be happy. I wouldn't say she was narcissist, but certainly she was. She had her own fears, and that transformed on onto us. And do you remember feeling happy at home as a child before your parents split up, or was it always a very oppressive atmosphere? I just don't have any memory before the age of twelve, really? which is yeah. I can never understand why that is. I'm assuming it's because of the trauma I went through, which started at the age of twelve. But for some reason. I have no memory before other than what family members tell me or what I see in photographs. And when you were 12, your mother started having an affair. How did that happen and how did you find out about what she was doing? I remember my sister and I being... We lived in a split-level house. Vanessa and I shared a, be- a quite large bedroom on the, on the top floor and you came down these stairs, so it was the only room up there, and you came down these stairs, and then there was a wrought iron gate, pretty wrought iron gate at the end, which, when we got to about 12, used to be locked, padlocked. So you couldn't come so down? So we wouldn't be able to come down until probably about 1 o'clock. This is at the weekends, until about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And, you know, as I got older, I became to realise that there were things going on that obviously, you know, my parents and, and my mum didn't want us to see. You don't realise, it seems normal at the time, but when I look back, you know, that was, that was a, a, you know, a, an unpleasant um, period of, of our life. She took you, didn't she, to, when she was meeting the man she was having an affair with, to his house, and she used to lock you out in the garden with your sister, what happened? Did you feel excluded or abandoned or was it even dangerous? I could never understand why she did that. Mm. Um, I didn't know what she, you know, I was quite naive, you know, because we'd been so suppressed. We were quite naive, I think, Vanessa and I as children. But yes, he, he lived in this bungalow on a dangerous road. And my sister was only five at the time. So I remember being quite confused by this because my mother had been so protective and yet in this environment this situation she was treating us completely different to what we were used to his garden was also on a steep decline with lots of rubble I mean the garden wasn't a garden as we're used to it was just rubble and you know it was dangerous it was very dangerous and there was this peculiar wife swap scenario what happened exactly and did you have any understanding of that either because it's beyond the comprehension of most children I'd have thought yes um I remember them having lots of parties and I remember I never had this conversation with my mother so I've only sort of been able to ask my father about it but she met John through the cleaner and that's how they started a relationship and then I think that you know my dad knew that she was obviously having an affair with with this John and then went through this period of wife swapping. And did you understand what was going on or not really as a child? Well obviously I must have known you, something. Some level, yeah. I must have known something to to then later life have this conversation with him. Mm. Um and you just sort of you know in your childish way try and fit the pieces together. Mm. And then your father moved out and John moved in. How did you feel about that? Were you upset or did you feel it was inevitable or did you feel excluded from your father or abandoned by him? I definitely never felt abandoned by him because he used to come and visit us 
religiously every week. And that was very strained because obviously the new man was in the house. They would be sitting in the lounge with him there. You know, it wasn't like we were having quality time together. It was very strained. Mm. You know, I think things are done differently today when parents split up. They, they have children for the day or they stay at their house or they take them out. My father by this time had a new partner so I'm guessing, and he lived in a, an, in a flat, so it was difficult to take us there. So it was very strained, but I, I was upset to have him leave. I mean, you know, I think at 12, that's a very difficult age for children to deal with a breakup. In fact, so difficult, I don't know if I mentioned it in my book, I actually had to stay down a year at school because I found it so so challenging. And did your mother change the way she behaved towards you after he moved in? Um, Did she change? Well, of course, I don't remember how she was with me before Mm. to a great deal. But yes, I would say that she she herself changed. When she was with my father, who was quite a gentle person, my mother, I would say, we always wore the trousers in the house, to the reverse, where she then um, met somebody who was controlling. You mentioned she was perhaps controlling, but he stopped her from seeing her family, her friends. Um, I think he was he was very controlling in that way. And what was he like with you? Was he also controlling or was he cruel? or How did he treat you? I think... What we found difficult was the mood swings. You know, he wasn't uh, violent, for example, but I think it was things like when he came home from work, we could tell by the way he threw his keys on the table what sort of mood he was in, and that, you know, would frighten us as a family. You know, that's abuse in its own way. Uh, the way he behaved, the sort of tantrums. At weekends, we didn't play or do the things that children normally did or mix with friends. We weren't allowed to have friends over. It was all about work. So we would be doing things like what we call logging. So we'd have to go down into the woods. We, We had this big garden with woods attached to it. But the house was, um, you know, on a steep hill, So we'd have to go down into the woods, carry the logs up the hill. We'd be digging vegetable patches and the garden was made of clay. So you can imagine what that was like. I remember having to clean out the swimming pool. So I would be in the pool with a scrubbing brush, scrubbing the the moss and algae off of the sides of the pool. He would be standing there waving a hose. And in between this... In between doing these things, there was the sexual abuse as well. How did the abuse actually start? Can you remember the first time that he touched you? Yes, I can. It's not pleasant to to talk about. It's not pleasant to have to try and remember those different individual examples. Um, Did it start very early on? Yes, I, I, I started when I was 12. And it went on for three years. And can you remember how or describe how you felt at the time and, and also afterwards? Did you did he somehow try to make it feel as if, as if this was normal or that, you know, you'd um, somehow brought it on yourself? No, he didn't do that. There was there was no conversation that I remember. Mm. Um, during, it was incredibly frightening Mm -hmm. and then there was I don't know what age I was but I remember in fact I must have been about 15 because it was when it stopped my and they weren't married at this point they split up and my mum was on her own for a year and then I remember hearing her on a phone call to my mum's sister who's still alive lovely lady and um my aunt has since told me that she said to her that she said to my mum why why are you taking him back Mm. and she said I know he's a bastard but I can't bear being on my own 
And incidentally, even my aunt has since told me that she saw the abuse towards me and raised it with my mum. So, you know, thing, and, and you probably know I also raised it with my doctor. Mm. Um, but things were dealt with differently then. They were swept under the carpet. And what you mentioned, you, met, you talked to the doctor about it. What happened then? I told the doctor, well, I was 15, I told the doctor I was worried about my sister. Mm. Um, and the doctor said to me, do you want me to send round a social worker? Which I didn't know what that meant. I thought, oh, my God, we're going to be taken away. You know, that's frightening. So mm. I went, oh, oh, no, no, no. And that was it. She never asked me any more, did anything more about it and allowed it to carry on. Do you think that in some ways it's more common than we realise that you have these abusive relationships within the family? That Did you discover subsequently that it happened to other people or did you feel very, very much as if you were the only person that could ever have gone through this? Totally. You feel it's just you. Um, nobody listened. You know, I, I tried to reach out to different people and people, people just handled things differently then. They didn't know how to handle it. It wasn't spoken about. You know, I, I remember talking to one of my, uh, the, the wife of one of my, um, of my uncle, not one of my uncles, of, of my uncle, my dad's brother. And she was a lovely lady. You know, these were nice people, but they just didn't know how to handle mm. it. And you must have been incredibly anxious the whole time. So how did that manifest itself? Did you have any eating disorders or were you worried about coming home from school? Or you know, I've never been asked this question before, but actually I didn't have an eating disorder. I, I had constipation all the time. I just, for some reason, didn't want to go to the toilet. I'd stop myself from going to the toilet and it wasn't until I was about 18 that I went to a, a hypnotist I think to get treatment to help me with that and then slowly as I became an adult that problem went away. But then you eventually did confront John didn't you? Can you just describe what happened? Was there something that was a tipping point you just thought this is it I can't carry on with this? I can't remember what the tipping point was, but I just probably just couldn't deal with the fear any longer. Mm. Um, and yes, I did confront him. What did you say? Um, I remember he was, it, we were in the lounge. My mother wasn't there and I knew it was all going to happen again. Um, and I'd been thinking for a while about how I was going to approach it. I didn't want it to be confrontational because I didn't know how it would unravel um, and what the consequences would be. So I pretended to, to, to almost share the blame by saying, you know, this can't carry on, which sort of implied I was part of that. Mm. But, you know. What did he say to you then, though? He didn't really respond. So do you wish you'd done it earlier? Or of course, I mean, absolutely. Mm. Because it never happened denying. again. Mm. It never happened again. No. So he, he was just denying what he was doing, really, until you confronted him. Yes, but we, you know, as children, you just don't know. Do you know what? If it was my daughter, you know, God forbid anything bad would happen to my daughter. I'm, you know, she's confident. She's been brought up to be. I mean, that's the one thing I wanted her to have is confidence. And, you know, you you've met her I, I don't know what your initial thoughts were but she for an 11 year old girl she's very confident yeah. she's confident she's comfortable with adults she, you know I she lives in a world where she knows the difference between right and wrong um you know and she's encouraged to uh stand up for herself you know I was just I was in an era where you were seen but not heard you you respected adults and you just didn't know you know you didn't have there weren't any boundaries your your boundary was to be quiet you know it, it wasn't to you know talk back
You're listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the businesswoman, Jacqueline Gold. There'll be more from us after this. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the CEO of Anne Summers, Jacqueline Gold. And as a teenager, you wrote really and worked to escape, didn't you? You did crossword puzzles to make money and was work the way you found an out really from your childhood? Absolutely. It was really weird because my mum wouldn't let me out. But because I said I was going to work, it was different. So, well, at 13, I was designing crossword puzzles at 50 pence a time. Mm. At, you know, 15, I had jobs um, in a hairdresser's, in a restaurant. I worked in in Medhurst, as it was called, in Bromley. And that was all okay. To me, that was... That gave me financial independence, and financial independence gives you freedom. It it gives you something in your life that you've never had before, and I just worked out the harder I worked, the more money I earned, and the more freedom and uh, that I had. But I also find it really fascinating and extraordinary that you then went to work at Anne Summers. So you was it almost trying to turn something that had been very frightening and traumatic, as it sex, into something liberating and fun? Was it was that your way of kind of reclaiming your sexuality? Initially, I went there for work experience, and everything that I was involved in was administrative. I worked in the wages department. I was entering information onto a computer. So it was very much that type of thing. And then I actually went to a Pippa D party, which was like clothes parties. Um, women knew that I worked at Ann Summers. And I could see that, you know, women weren't empowered in the bedroom, that women were uncomfortable going into a sex shop. And that if you did go into a sex shop, everything was aimed at men. Hmm. It was about men's pleasure, what men wanted to be sexy. You know, the underwear was just awful. <laughs> and yeah, it it absolutely was that. It was about completely turning it on its head. So was it, it was really about giving women back control of sex and, and giving them a reason to enjoy it rather than a reason to feel embarrassed or ashamed of it. Totally. It was about women taking control. And it was so different then. You couldn't even buy sexy underwear in the high street like you can today. The generation of today just wouldn't realise the sort of crusade that I've been on in those last almost 40 years now. And how much do you think that was driven by your personal need to take back control, having been a victim of abuse? I I think it was that, Rachel. I I think it was very much that. Um, Otherwise, I can't see how I would have been comfortable in that environment Um, and it was just turning something negative into a positive. Mm. 
What did all the traditional male members on the board think of you? I mean, they were just um, didn't take me seriously. Um, I think that I had so much negativity at the beginning from men. You know, women, on the other hand, was great. <laughs> women at that first party were like, you know, we want to be able to liven up our sex lives, but we don't want to go uh, into a sex shop. And I remember taking that idea to the board. I was 21 years old. And, you know, if you can imagine this room full of middle-aged, grey-suited men, they'd only known top-shelf magazines or the few shops that we had, which were obviously all aimed at men and very clinical. You know, I could just see in their eyes they didn't get what I was trying to explain. (laughs) And one board member, he stood up, threw his pen down on the table, hands on hips. Well, this isn't going to work, is it? Women aren't even interested in sex. (laughs) Oh, my God. That says so much about his sex life and nothing about my idea. So do you think the power balance has changed between men and women sexually since you started? Completely. And, I, you know, that is... I, I, I'm not ashamed to say that's something I am so proud of, you know, to drive cultural change and develop a brand that pioneered women's empowerment, sexual empowerment. And I know that for sure. I know it from what people have told me at the time, women coming up to me and saying, you know, you've changed my life and going on TV shows and having well-known people say to me, I conceived my second child wearing your um, (laughs) nurse's outfit or somebody else. You know, but these are women that have done that themselves, have not been told to do it or expected to do it. And for me, that is something, you know, I always want to be remembered for. And is there any sense, though, that you're sort of pandering to stereotypes with things like the French maids' outfits or nurses' outfits or all the sort of fishnets? Do you think that's a sort of slightly old-fashioned view of what women want or actually is it women's choice? Well, you know, certainly in the early days, a lot of people said, you know, are you, you, are you just pandering to men's desires? But I think that one of the main things that I've learned over the years is women wear sexy underwear and they dress up to make themselves feel good about themselves. This is about how it makes women feel. And that's what we promote. That's what we advocate. Um, You know, couples love to role play and everybody has their different fantasies and we've got role play outfits for men as well as women. So it's not that I would ever want to, you know, create... Uh, negativity. I think if you've got two con- consensual adults that want to role play or experiment, as long as boundaries are respected. And I think, you know, I always say that sex is the golden thread through every relationship, but you have to have good communication. What about Fifty Shades of Grey? Because Anne Summers did really well out of it. But did you have any sense that women were being humiliated or that they weren't allowed to be the dominant partner or that it was very much a stereotype? Um, Well, I think we split this into two because I, you know, at the beginning it was all about the books. I think what was fascinating about Fifty Shades was that it was, I, I think it was about the Kindle actually. People were reading naughty books on their Kindles on the train and on holiday on the sunbeds without anybody knowing what they were reading. And it was then suddenly, you know, we all know it was never going to win a literary award. <laughs> I mean, let's face it. Did you read them all? I, I, I read the first one. And, and you know, um, I, I needed to know why there was this phenomenon. And I mean, it did become... It was talked about on social media, it was amplified online, it became hundreds of, a hundred million copies, I think, were sold worldwide, outselling Harry Potter. I mean, whoever thought (laughs) that could possibly happen. So what happened at the beginning was that, um, you know, every time Fifty Shades was mentioned, Anne Summers was mentioned. So all of a sudden, even in bookshops, these erotic books at the back of the store were being brought to the front of the store. Things were changing. And, you know, we were part of that. So, yes, it was, it was exciting. And women were choosing to read these books. It wasn't until I went to watch the film, and this is what I mean about the second half, I'm not, I, I wasn't such a fan of the film. But, you know, the, that's my personal opinion. And we go back to fantasies again. 
everybody has their different fantasies. And whilst I like to, you know, we, we call them sexessories when you talk about blindfolds and whips and couples obviously use them in different ways. And I like to promote them in an empowering way for women. But there are many women that love to that love that fantasy of, you know, being tied to the bed or, or whatever it is. And I think, you know, I go back to saying, you know, if it's what two consensual adults want to do, then I'm, I think that's great. And you've also done a lot to empower women in the boardroom as well as the bedroom. Mm-hmm. You, I think half your board members are female, uh, Anne Summers. Why is that important to you? And do you think it makes a, bus- a difference to how the business works? Well, it, it, was, it sort of naturally evolved. You know, it was all about empowering women in the bedroom. And then, obviously, being a woman myself and... Um, recruiting people into the business and the business has obviously evolved over the years. 80% of our senior team actually are women and our top earners, our top four earners are all women. Um, And I'm really proud of that. But I also believe it should be the best person for the job. Do you think your business runs better though because there are more women? Well, it always surprised me years ago when I was at the direct selling conference and I was talking to this makeup company that there wasn't one woman on their board considering 70% of purchasing decisions are made by women let alone makeup it's vital to have female representation and the younger generation have a much more fluid attitude don't they about gender do you think that's a good thing that people have become more relaxed and that that we're much less it's not prudish it's more that we're, we're more relaxed about what you want to be and who you want to be Yes, I love that about the younger generation. And I love that, you know, they're always correcting people because, you know, the older generation, we we sometimes use the wrong terminology or I personally absolutely think, you know, I really support freedom of choice and being able to express yourself in whatever way you want to express yourself. So where diversity is concerned, I think the younger generation we will see a much bigger change forward than we have with fem- women's equality, for example. And mm. um, where are you on the whole trans debate? Do you have mixed sex changing rooms? Or if somebody who's self-identified as a woman wanted to come to a no men, quotes, party, what would, um, what would you say? What's your policy and that sort of thing? Well, certainly my, our policy would be we would welcome, absolutely welcome transgender. We want to support them. Mm. Uh, we want to empower them. Um, we want to make them feel comfortable. Of course, absolutely, our changing rooms are open to transgenders. We, our campaigns, I mean, our, our last, uh, in fact, not just our last campaign, but our last few campaigns, we've had a, a, a wonderful lady called Tallulah Eve, who is transgender. Um, it's been fantastic getting to know her. I go to the, the campaign filming myself I love to meet the the models we don't just have transgender we have women with disabilities we have customers in our campaigns we have ambassadors from our parties in our campaigns larger women curve women black women I just you know for me to be able to empower all women I think is something that I love to be able to do. Are you worried then about the sort of culture war that's grown up over the last few years that seems to pitch people against each other and actually stir up dissent rather than being open and inclusive? I have been concerned about it, yes. Um, And I'm personally steering our own diversity review at Anne Summers because we've done so much work. We're so ahead of the curve when it comes to female empowerment for women you know, we want to make sure that we're doing absolutely everything we can in that space. But I think where there's difficulties is that I think it's a moving, you know, it's constantly evolving. Terminology is constantly changing. I think it's quite difficult for the older generation to keep pace with those changes. And I think it's important that we all educate ourselves and learn as much as we can in that space and just changing it to something completely differently. We were on our Christmas campaign working with two drag queens, just lovely, Georgina and Just May. Uh, I said to them, look, you know, how do you like to be referred to? And they said, well, we like to be called queens. I said, okay, I'll call you queens then. But I think if you're in doubt, 
you should ask people. Mm. And I think that's the most respectful way. And do you feel now that there's a worry that there's so much online porn and has that changed the relationship about sex between men and women and has it made it much more difficult for the younger generation to have sort of discover their own sexuality and have a more normal relationship? We don't know yet, do we, until that that sort of happens. But as the mother of an 11-year-old, certainly the online is a worry for me. You know, luckily my daughter's really into her Xbox, so she's more interested in the Xbox than... (laughs) Um, and I've, I've, I'd rather that than her, you know, she has done TikTok and she's been on it and she's come off it because she saw somebody talking about their sexual experience, which was done in a, you know, not in a, a bad way, but, you know, we're very open, aren't we? And our generations now are, people talk very openly, as indeed I am right now. And do you feel desperate to protect her or do you feel a sense that you don't want to repeat what your mother did, that you must give her a chance to become more resilient? Am I overprotective? I, if my husband was sitting here, he might say sometimes. <laughs> um, what about? So I have to rein that in. Well, my daughter was um, unfortunately diagnosed with type 1 diabetes five months ago. So I did become very protective during that period. And, you know, it was uh, a very worrying time. And I wanted to learn everything about diabetes that I could. And... Um, I got this badge that says type 1 diabetes, insulin dependent, which is on her school blazer. And, you know, we were, I picked her up from school. She said, mummy, I can't believe you still make me wear this. (laughs) And then, of course, I got the eye roll. Um, And that's great because we have that type of relationship. She knows that she can come to me and talk about anything and I will not judge her. And you really struggled at first to have children and you went through several rounds of IVF and you split up briefly with your husband and then you eventually had twins which must have been phenomenal and extraordinary but then your son died when he was eight or nine months old. That must have just been utterly devastating, wasn't it? I mean, I've, I've gone through a number of traumas in my life, obviously. We spoke at length about my childhood. Um, I've been poisoned by my nanny. I've received a bullet through the post. Um, I've been targeted by a gang at my home. So I've had uh, a number of experiences and certainly losing my son at eight months old, nothing comes close to having to deal with that was undoubtedly the worst time in my life. Stuart Rose talked to us once about how, the businessman talked to us about how having a trauma as a child gives you almost antibodies that protect you against future suffering. Do you recognise that at all? Or is losing a child just on such a different level that you're you're completely unprotected and unprepared? Um, I, I know Stuart, actually, and I totally understand what he's saying. I think... Generally speaking, and I'll, I'll come back to losing losing Alfie in a moment, but I think generally speaking, you you have two ways of approaching adversity. You know, you can either crumble or you can say, you know, I'm going to turn my life around. I'm not going to let this happen to me. I'm. You can make the choice of change, success, and just turning your life around. And that's the choice that I made. And I use that in everything. Any challenge that's thrown at me, that's what I do. You know, I, had, I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2016. I approached it like a business challenge. You know, I had a strategy. I was focused. I was on a mission. I was going to make changes in my life, and I did. So it gives you a, a, almost a superpower. But it, when you lose your child... You, you know, what kept me going after I lost Alfie was my daughter. What do you do on her birthday? Because it must be extraordinary because it's both her birthdays, isn't it? Birthdays are bittersweet. Mm. So we'll go to the graveyard in the morning and we'll lay a wreath and we'll spend some time there. And then we'll have a party for Scarlett in the afternoon. So it's very difficult. But we've done that almost 12 years And I think what's helped me, my husband and Scarlett is we've always kept Alfie's memory alive. You know, we we talk about Alfie regularly. He's in our prayers. We have 
lots of memories for Scarlett when she's older that she can, you know, look back at and, you know, she'll always have those memories. There'll be those videos that we took of her and Alfie. So I think Scarlett will always feel Alfie is there. It must feel like a limb is missing. And for Scarlett as well, it must feel as if something's gone from her life before she even knew it was there, really. Um, Very difficult for Scarlett. Much more so, actually, you know, sort of around that age nine, that sort of age. But, and it's always bedtime that she, because we all, you know, think differently when we're unwinding and getting ready to go to bed. So whenever we had those sort of moments where she would just come out and say, Mummy, I really miss Alfie. Mm. And I'd say, would you like to do a prayer? And then we'd sit down together at the bedside and I would do a prayer first and then she'd do one, and she felt so much, always felt so much better. Do you have a sense that you'll see him again then? Yes, absolutely. And I feel like he's here. Hmm. We want to take you back now to think about your childhood and just thinking about yourself when you were 12, when those terrible things started happening. What advice would you give to yourself if you could go back now and, and give yourself advice? You are going to be okay. You are absolutely going to be okay. And you don't know now, but you're going to grow up and you're going to turn your life around. You're going to empower other women. You're going to bring up a beautiful, strong, courageous daughter. It's all going to be okay. Um... And you're going to have the most amazing resilience and courage. Because those are the two things I felt I didn't have. Why do you think you were able to stop yourself being a victim when other people haven't? Because you're a very shy child. And as you say, you weren't confident at all. No, but I just had this... Just because you're shy, it doesn't mean to say you're weak. You know, just because you're shy or you don't speak up, it doesn't mean to say that you don't have a fire burning within you. And I really had that. You know, on the outside, I would portray one thing, but on the inside, you had the the determination like no other. And I've carried that through with me to this day. And how do you think it's affected your character now? It must make it quite hard to trust people. I think when I was younger... You know, growing, uh, when I say younger, I don't mean as a child, but, you know, as a young adult, I think that was true. But I've changed as I've got older. I think once I I was comfortable in speaking out, because, it, you know, there were so many people that were in my situation. We obviously talk a lot about young children, vulnerable children, but there's a lot of um, vulnerable adults that have never you know, had the care and support that they needed. And many that still live life with that secret. Do you think you have a greater sense of empathy then for them? Totally, totally. But I think as I've got older, I have a greater sense of empathy for people generally. You know, what's right for one person isn't right for another. How one person handles their trauma is different in another. And at the end of the day, Whatever your trauma, whatever, you know, let's face it, most of, us, most of us have got a skeleton or a tragedy of something. And people just want to be listened to mm. and understood. Do you think also it gives you a greater sense of perspective about what really matters in life? Totally. Yes, I think it does. It's having that perspective and doing something about it, though, that's the difference. And it's quite hard to change old habits. And I have to, some of those changes I've made easily, some I find more difficult. But I constantly work towards them. I also wonder whether it's made you better in business and helped you in your career at all, actually having overcome something so difficult at an early age. It does, because you think if I can overcome what I had to deal with at 12 years old... I can overcome this. Mm. I'm very solution-focused. Very solution-focused. I'm not blame-focused. I want to solve the problem. I want to fix things. 
Is there also a sense of wanting to prove your abuser wrong, that you want to prove that he can't control you in any way and that he hasn't taken over your life in any way? Well, they say the best form of revenge is success. And I believe that. And it's an empowering feeling. Jacqueline Gold, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the businesswoman, Jacqueline Gold. This is a Wireless Studios production for Times Radio, produced by Ben Mitchell. To listen back to previous guests and make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts or from the Times Radio app. We'll be back with another Past Imperfect next week. you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series please go to the podcast description where there are links to charities and organizations who are there to help when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer it streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.